I want to introduce the Red Hand listeners to a fantastic business who support the podcast. Hill Fitness is Northern Ireland's leading home gym equipment provider. Whether you're a total beginner buying your first weight set or a strength training veteran creating your dream home gym, Hill Fitness have you covered. From dumbbells to squat racks, gym flooring to exercise bikes, Hill Fitness have everything you need and more. The Red Hand listeners can receive an exclusive discount of 5% off their first order in-store or online. Just use code RED5, all caps, at the checkout. Check them out at hillfitnessuk.co.uk. That's discount code RED5, all capitals, for 5% off your first order at hillfitnessuk.co.uk. Hill Fitness make amazing home gyms happen. Imagine a place free from gravity. Imagine a place free from all external stimulation where the only thing you can hear is your own heartbeat. A place where your physical and mental health can rest and recover, where you can reconnect with your whole self. That place is Hydroways. Come and join us. You can find us at www.hydro-ease.co.uk Hello and welcome to the Red Hand Podcast. The Red Hand provides next-level Ulster rugby coverage, offering fans unrivaled insight, unfiltered opinion, powerful stories, and accessible analysis. Every minute of every game is covered with weekly in-depth written articles, interviews with players past and present, analysis from rugby experts, and a podcast in which we preview and review Ulster's games and discuss all things Ulster rugby. To gain full access, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the red hand or visit theredhand.co. To celebrate the launch of the red hand, the first 100 red hand supporters on Patreon will be entered into a free prize draw for an Ulster rugby season ticket. All you have to do is sign up to the Patreon and the lucky winner will be drawn from the first 100 entrants. The winner will be announced on the 1st of September at 12pm. Okay, so in this episode of the Red Hand Podcast, I'll be talking to Ulster legend and European Cup winning hero of 99, Simon Mason. So Ulster fans will remember him fondly and hopefully you remember Ulster fondly as well. But Simon, first of all, how are you? And some Ulster fans might not be aware of what you're up to at the minute. So if you give us a, a bit of a life update, what you're up to. Yeah, no, I mean, since I retired, um, I, I became a teacher. So I've been, I've been teaching at um, St. Anne's Arms College, which was actually my old school. So I sort of um, went there for 12 months on a you know to train up really and then they gave me a job and I've stayed there ever since so yeah 16 years there and I had up sort of director of rugby I suppose effectively and then second in PE so uh, yeah absolutely love it it's in a place called Birkenhead which is just across the water from from Liverpool so um, you know it's it's sort of my neck of the woods as you'd say yeah yeah and like whenever I I told fans and listeners, Ulster fans and listeners of the podcast that you'd be coming on, there was a big reaction. People really remember you and you're a legend in Ulster. So I want to know a, a bit more about what's your connection to Ulster rugby now? Do you try and watch all the games? Do you keep in touch with former teammates? And Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's been great really because... I think in the last few years, anyway, the I, I played a bit for the uh, the Irish Legends and when they play the English Legends, and, and was keeping in touch with people when I, when I first finished, you know, and then on top of that, kept in touch with a lot of the Ulster lads, and um, you know, it, it was um, even you know the last that last European Cup final down at Twickenham, you know, I was down there meeting everyone, and since then, I think people have made a really big effort to keep in touch. I try and go over quite regularly. I went over. Um, last season with my daughter, and um, you know she she likes to watch Ulster games as well. So so I do try and get over quite a bit. I, I even brought the uh, the school rugby first fifteen over um, a few months back. So that was nice because the lads got to have a a little trip round. Well, I call it Ravenhill, but Kingspan, and um, we played a, a couple of games in in um, in in Northern Ireland as well. So um, including Balamina. So it, it was really good. So yeah, I mean I, I've sort of kept my link a lot, and obviously. As you can imagine, you know, we're all a real tight group still. And, 
you know, we've got our own little WhatsApp groups and things. So, um, you know, it's been great. I mean, you know, in that way, I just wish I was a bit closer where I could come more regularly. Yeah, and it's cool to hear that those bonds still remains, you know, after all these years. There's something special about that squad, and we'll talk a wee bit more about that later on. But I want to hear, you're, you're saying you have uh, daughters. Are, are they fully aware of your legendary status in Ulster? Yeah. Is it something that... Well, I don't think that comes comes really, but I mean, no, Kira's quite into her rugby and she, um, you know, went over to the, the Island New Zealand game last November as well, took her over there. So, you know, she's followed it quite a lot. She played a bit of rugby herself. Um, she's a university now, so she's not playing as much rugby now. But yeah, she, she's, I think she really sort of likes the, the whole rugby thing. And um, yeah, you know, it, it was nice taking her over actually. And then to be fair, um, you know, Gary Leslie, who, who, who was very good and, and got me into um, the sort of the VIP bit. So we, we got we got to go in there for, um, for the game. It was a few years ago, actually, now we went there. That was the Bath game and the European game. It was a really good win as well. So, yeah, I think she loved it. And I say, I mean, just from my point of view, I love coming over, but it's just, you know, it's just difficult coming over regularly because, you know, it's just a little bit of a track with having to get the plane and stuff. Otherwise, I'd be over every weekend to watch the games. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear that you're you're still still so connected to the Ulster Rugby and, and obviously feel a big part of the community here as well. There's there's a sort of an Ulster Rugby bubble and it's still uh it's it's so good to hear that you're still part of that. So um the sort of first thing I ask most people, and it's pretty obvious for you that you you have a real passion for rugby. So uh I read somewhere that you were turning out to your local team. I don't are you still playing for your local team or yeah, you, well, have you not yeah, that I played a couple of games last year because, well, funny enough, my daughter, Kira, her boyfriend, was playing for the second team at Birkenhead Park. And I, I'd said I would never go on a rugby pitch again. And then um, I sort of got persuaded. You know, it's like on a Saturday night, I said, you've got to play next Saturday with, with, with Paddy. So, uh, so I've had a couple of run-outs with him. But, yeah, I think my actual playing days are gone now. But people were quite shocked because up until about 45, 46, I was playing National League rugby and, in England, so and you know what, I really enjoyed it, and, and I had that conversation with a few people. I think, you know, especially when you're playing. Well, I went to fly half at that point, so I mean, I, I think I preferred to play first team, playing alongside good players at a decent level, and than dropping down the leagues and dropping down the team. So, uh, but no, I mean, yeah, I mean, probably inadvertently, and I, I never really imagined myself when I, when I gave up effectively what was full time professional, and then uh, had a couple of years as a semi pro. I never really imagined myself to to keep playing until the mid mid 40s to late 40s but I suppose again that's just back to that era that we sort of came from you know it, it wasn't a fully professional rugby setup that we sort of all came into it wasn't through academies and things you just you, you started rugby as a schoolboy just wanted to play the highest level you could and uh, you know and then for me I suppose as I went into teaching after rugby it was just a bit of a sideline doing a bit of player coaching and uh I, I just kept it going and, and touch wood. Yeah, I had a couple of bad injuries at the end, but I, I was fairly lucky really with injuries. So, uh, yeah, that sort of passion, stupidity, I suppose you'd say, probably runs through me too much. <laughs> so, obviously, you're you're still coaching your head of rugby um, at your old school. So, what is it that you love about rugby? I, I agree of your, your playing days uh, up until recently. That'll be peer pressure, but obviously you do, you do love uh, both playing and coaching rugby. So what is it you love about rugby and what got you um, passionate about rugby in the first place? Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of well documented, you know, with me being from Liverpool or, you know, just in the suburbs of Liverpool. So, I mean, we're a massive football area around here but the school I went to St Anselm's was a, was a big rugby school and there is a lot of rugby in the Merseyside area so my dad um, you know his his the old boys club of, of the school about now he he was sort of a founder member there so rugby was just part of me from an early age five or six and you know I, I just find even you know I talked about this with someone the other day I mean when I was on holiday funny enough I was bumped into um, a Welsh guy who's a big passionate rugby fan and we were just talking about how many people who are good players who maybe drop out of the game when they leave school they might not necessarily make professional level but, but just being part of a rugby club I think you know there's that social connection you know if you you need your, your roof doing or you know suddenly you need a plumber you can ring someone up from the club and I think there's so many good connections from being around rugby it's such a great sport I mean obviously some people are very privileged to play the highest level 
and play professionally. But there's so many layers of rugby where, you know, commute the community game and certainly at schoolboy level, you know, again, we're a really big football area around here. But we find that the parents and, and the boys themselves, they just love the whole camaraderie of rugby and the fact that, you know, afterwards the teams mix and, and you don't necessarily get that over here in, in, in football. So, you know, I think from, from a school point of view, we, we really try and drive that and, you know, the discipline of rugby. And I think it's it just, I find now having been in different parts of the game, it's just a really special sport. Yeah. And obviously you're saying there about Liverpool being so football um, dominated. It's it's like the, the, the two clubs, I suppose, are like the heartbeat of the city in some ways. Did you play a lot and were you very into football? I suppose it ties into your kicking ability. That's what I'm, that's yeah. what I'm guessing. Yeah, it was, you know, and, and that was the thing. But, I mean, again, you know, even back then, I mean, a few lads from the school I went to who were super talented. I remember one guy playing for Everton and Austin Healy, who was in the same team as me, he says he was at Everton Academy, but there wasn't really such a thing as that then. You know, you just, if you were a decent footballer, you got, you got pushed and there was regional stuff and things like that. But I suppose for me, you know, I... I loved football, but rugby just became that mainstay and passion of my life. And then, you know, the, the kicking side of it and being able to strike a ball was just something from, you know, again, growing up summers, you know, we would just, as soon as, it, as soon as we got up in the morning, the summer holidays, we'd be off a group of us to the fields, kicking rugby balls, kicking footballs around, playing cricket and, uh, you know, until, until literally it went dark and then we'd come back and, you know, again, same sort of thing now being in education. You know, there's a lot of kids who just need to sort of embrace sport more. And, you know, even if you're not going to be a top player, you know, the fitness values of it and the team camaraderie, it's just, it's really important. Yeah. I, I, I want to hear a wee bit more about your sort of early career as well. So playing uh, at, for Oral and Richmond and you played with some yeah. big names there. So Pichu and Quinnell and I think, was Dan McFarland there at the same time? Yeah, sorry, that, I mean, that, I didn't really mention that before. Yeah, I mean, that's another nice tie for me. I mean, obviously Dan was a friend of mine when I played at Richmond and it's been brilliant to see him do so well um, in the coaching. And when he got the job at Ulster, I was delighted because he was obviously a big name and you know, very highly thought of as a young coach. So, you know, to see him, to see him get the Ulster job, you know, I've, I, it's been nice to keep in touch with him. And you know, it's just been a little like last year. Was so lucky with the with the Toulouse game, wasn't he? You know, when you think of you know how far that side's come to go away and beat Toulouse away, and then you know just narrowly lose over the points differential over the two games. But but I think he's doing a cracking job. And uh, yeah, I mean that was. Again, Dan and I even were sort of friends before we even went to Richmond because we came through the Irish Exiles setup together, which was, which was a big, a big part of um, you know the drive by the Irish rugby unit at the time to get Irish qualified players to sort of uh, you know to, to to embrace the Irish setup, and that was the making of me. Really, you say in those early years. I mean, even before I got to Oral, I played. I played at um, Liverpool St. Allen's and then Newcastle was on the year out from university. So, you know, that and that around that time I was I was in the Irish Exiles setup and that really gave me that sort of window to go and play and perform and, and see a pathway to play in international rugby and you know, having a future in the game. Yeah, and, and speaking of sort of um playing for Ireland to what made the decision for you to, to to elect to play for Ireland? I suppose you have the option to elect for England as well. But as, as far as I can tell, from under 21s forward, that was always your ambition to play for Ireland. What, yeah, what made that choice? And, uh, and it was, you know, there, there was a good story to that as well because, you know, it's the sort of thing I get ripped about a little bit, obviously, you know. But um, but I, my, my family were all Irish and um, um, I, I was. Um, I was given that opportunity to, to go for the Irish Exiles. So I was playing North of England in the 21s at the time, and then and then I, I, I broke into the Irish under 21 side. It was brilliant because we beat England, and, and ironically, the first game we won was it was at Ravenhill, um, and it was a, a sort of rainy, windy night, and we, we Johnny Bell was playing, and Anthony Foley, bless him, um, was the captain, and it was just brilliant. And we won, and I played well, and I once had made that decision, that was it for me. And then when I went to Oral. I hadn't been capped by Ireland A at that point, so I still technically could have done whatever I wanted. But in my mind, there was no—it wasn't a case of 
do I, do I suddenly want to play for England? But I'd made that decision. Uh, I love the whole Irish setup, and uh, and England they actually offered me a chance to play against Canada. Uh, Mike Slammon rang me up and said, "Listen, because he's my coach, already said, you know, um, what do you think?" And I said, "No, I'm, I'm happy in the Irish. That's a bit, and I might not be guaranteed, you know, a senior cap or anything, but I've made that decision. You know, it's a great setup. I'm really enjoying it. And uh, and to be fair to Mike, um, he said, "Listen, you know, I think you made a really good choice there." And, and ironically, a few months later, I played a for Ireland, and then whirlwind. A couple of weeks later, Humps and I were playing, making our debuts for the senior team. Yeah, and t- tell me a bit more about sort of that that wor- you said like whirlwind rise. So, um, coming up, you're identified obviously as, as having massive potential. And um, what what was it you're doing playing at, at, for Oral and Richmond that captured the attention? Do you think of selectors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably to be fair to the Richmond side, but it was a strange one because I mean. The lead up to it, so I went to Newcastle. It was only a year. I was I had a I was on a building surveying degree course, and so the third year you had to do a placement. So I got signed by Newcastle, and they got me a job, and they really looked after me. It was sort of semi pro up there, so they they got me a house to stay in and a car, and, and it was fantastic. And that year was the equivalent of the championship in England. I had a great season, and then I had to go back to university. Um, so Oral came in, and and basically said, you know, do, do you want to come and replace Simon Langford? Because he's retired. He was a pretty similar player to me, obviously a bit more experienced, but, you know, he was a goal kicker and, uh, you know, they, they had a good back line. He was playing Dan Luger. So uh, it just seemed like a, a no, a, you know, a no, a no-brainer really to go there. And then, you know, that was the breakthrough, I think, because we played this really nice brand of rugby in the Premiership and, um, you know, very quickly, I was broken into the Irish A team and then the senior team. It was at the end of that season that rugby had effectively, you know, gone fully professional. Then I had this wonderful offer, just quite university and financially, it was a really good offer to go to Richmond. And as you said, you know, all these big names like the Cornell brothers, Alan Bateman, Ben Clark, um, Adrian Davis, Andy Moore, just a really good set of, of boys went there. But that. But the, the strange thing about Richmond was that then I tried to drop down back into the championship. Um, and that really was, was the, the only shame about that because uh, the poor game against Western Samoa, you know, we all pretty much got dropped after that because we lost to Samoa. Um, and, and then for me, I was then suddenly in the championship, not particularly playing on TV or anything to, you know, for the selectors. So, and that's when I fell out of things for probably, you know, 12 months, two years. Um, and it was only then when I signed for, for, for Ulster in '98 that suddenly I came back onto the onto the scene. And, and from the Irish selectors' point of view, you know, it was um, you know they, they, they started to see me again, and, and were watching interprovincial games and European games. So you know, so I did sort of go into the wilderness for a little bit. I mean, it was my own making, and you know, you know, unfortunately for me, when we did get promoted with Richmond to the to the Premiership, I, I didn't really feature as much as I thought I would because they signed an Australian international called Matt Penny, who was a good player, but he wasn't by any stretch, you know, a world-class player. So, but I effectively just dropped out of it for 12 months. And then, so going back to Ulster for me was really a bit of a sort of, you know, a lifesaver. Yeah. And, and just on that point, how did you end up coming to Ulster? I'm sure there was no shortage of choices. Um, you were playing good rugby and you probably could have earned more elsewhere. So what was it enticed you about Belfast, which at that time didn't have a great reputation, sort of coming towards the end of the Troubles, but no one was uh, sure of, of, of what was mm-hmm. going to happen. Um, so what was it about Belfast that enticed you over? I mean, it was just probably just like all things in life sometimes. It's just a quirk of fate. Um, as I say, I dropped out of it in the second season at Richmond, even though we got into the Premier ship and um you know I, I was fit it was i was playing well but just couldn't get in the team i had this matt penny and then at the end of that season well probably just after christmas they said listen do you want to just play some more rugby so i went on loan to blackheath um again back the league below in, in the championship equivalent level and um and just had a good couple of months enjoyed myself played some good rugby and i think you know couple of people then started asking what you do next season. I still had a year to go to be fair on my Richmond contract. So, you know, it was good money as well. So, you know, it was a bit of a dilemma for me really. Um 
But I was always, I'd always kept in contact with, with Humps and with Mark McCall and Johnny Bell because they, you know, they were close friends. And, and it, when I was at Richmond as well, I knew a lot of the, I was really good friends with all the London Irish boys because I lived with Niall Woods, who's now the source of the agents, uh, player agent. But, you know, he, he played in the wing for Ireland when I played fullback. So we, we, we were close friends because we were living in a, apartment together in near London Irish ground. So, so you know, they were getting in my ear saying, listen, we're all going back to Ireland now. A lot of us are going back to, obviously, to Ulster. Um, and I just, I just thought, you know, great opportunity. It's a good level of rugby, European Cup, and the Interpros. And, you know, really, it was like, like a lot of things in my life, I suppose, it was just a bit of instinct. And uh, spoke to Harry Williams and just really fancied the opportunity. Yeah, and, and so when you came to Ulster, how did Harry Williams describe the project that sort of lay ahead of you? And Ulster had been a dominant force years previous, but what were the expectations whenever you joined? Was there so, was there sort of a plan laid out ahead of you to, to convince you to come over? Well, I mean, as I say, I mean, probably without, you know, it probably doesn't sound as glamorous as probably people think it might have been coming over, but you know, really for me, I didn't feel it all started to sell themselves to me. It was more for, you know, I, I just, I thought, you know what, I, I need to get myself playing a decent level again. And, and really what Harry did was, it, he was very sort of calculated, Harry, a very intelligent bloke. And he, I think he knew, he knew my background. He'd done a bit of research on me and he probably realised that whenever I went somewhere, especially as a goal kicker, you know, you know, if you valued and you, you thought of highly in the team and, you know, because I wasn't the quickest and I wasn't someone who was going to set the world like from getting the ball though I could play I was a good footballer I could play and um, you know he just told me the fact that you know it was going to be you know a competitive environment that if I went there and did well I'd have a chance of getting back into the into the Irish setup um, you know and and really we you know and Harry probably the first to, to say back then in 1998 and whenever I was speaking to you know May of 98, no one was dreaming of European Cup success. It was just about getting back to being a competitive interprovincial setup. But once you heard the names like Mark McCall, David Humphreys, Jonathan Bell, Alan Clark, Fitzpatrick, it just, it, it did feel like something was going to happen. It felt like this was going to be a good setup. And, you know, uh, so for me, I, I, I just jumped at the opportunity. Yeah. So I, I also read in an interview, you said that. Whenever you came to Northern Ireland, you, you felt that you had an immediate sense that these are my people. So tell me more about that sort of sense of identity or sense of being part of the community here. And why why do Northern Irish people feel like your people? Yeah, I mean, it sounds very dramatic when you say it back like that. <laughs> Nelson Mandela quote, but it, it wasn't that profound, really. But I mean, in the sense of that, what I meant was, you know, I, I'd gone to London for a couple of years. It was great, and the money was good, and there was lots of high profile, you know, saying peace show, and people like world class players, top players. But for me, I always tried, and like Oral was backs against the wall, and, uh, you know, and even when I was up in Newcastle, the Geordies, it was sort of, you know, it was always us against them. And I just got that feeling, you know, you, you, it's the minute you got onto the boat to go over to, uh, to Belfast from Liverpool, you know, speaking to people, the crack, and having a good laugh. And, you know, and as you said, you know, it was, it was an uncertain time with the political situation. But for me, I, I was very much, you know, from, from Liverpool, you know, we're, we're sometimes sort of putting that thing where everyone puts bad publicity about, you know, Merseyside and the political side or anything, but I was always one of those two, like, you know, I'm, I'm fairly sort of uh, amenable person, I like, I like making friends with people in contact with, if someone treats me well, I'll treat them well, and, and you know, as soon as I got to uh, to Belfast, I just thought, this is this is like being in Liverpool, it's just really good fun, people are just, you know, say what they think, and, you know, and, you know, almost trying to take themselves too seriously, so I felt I sat them really well, and uh, so I had a lot of friends there anyway, um, I started the first few months by staying up in Ballymena, at, um, well, still a good friend of mine, Rodney Cole, and and Pat's late wife, but they looked after me. They literally, uh, you know, as he, as he sort of laughs about, because they, they literally left the key under the mat and said, um, you know, let yourself in. And then that was me staying at his house for about three months, never left. So I used to travel down to Belfast and, uh, you know, go from Balmina every day for the first few months. But I mean, you know, they're, 
brilliant people and you know I had a really good start because it was you know I was in and around Ballymena Rugby Club and uh, they were very friendly and then obviously the setup at Ulster I mean the irony of that probably and, and I'm not sure Humps has probably said a similar thing but you know I went from Richmond where they had psychologists and you know three physios and dietitians and three gyms and all this and suddenly go it's like you know it's different now because it's so elite isn't it but when I went over there it was like you know, even then we're still training in the evenings for, for the main rugby sessions and there was, you know, a few dumbbells lying around and it, it, it just felt from that side a little bit of a step backwards. But but I could always see the wider picture. I always felt, you know, I, I got quite fit in, in London. You know, when I wasn't playing, I was still training really hard. So so I felt, you know, I was just raring to go. I just wanted to play, you know, into pros and European games and, and just make up for lost time. Yeah, interesting to hear about sort of that um, transition from amateur to professionalism. And one of the other guys, as I said before the podcast, uh, spoke to is David Humphreys. And he's someone who took, he was very professional, always said he much enjoyed, much more enjoyed playing games than he did training, which I'm sure is the case for most people. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell us a bit more about your relationship with, with Humphreys. Obviously, you had an arrangement with him over who would take the kicks and yeah, tell me yeah. how, how, you were, how did you work that one out because he's not a bad kicker himself. Uh, well, do you know what? It's, a, it's crazy really because, um, you know, people ask me this all the time I think some people forget that I actually not, well, obviously not Ulster, but other people like meeting this guy on holiday, he's a big Welsh rugby fan. He was saying, Oh, I forgot you're in the same team as David Humphreys. How come you took the kicks and arms? And it just came back to probably the way Humps is. I mean, I was just, from the moment I met him, I just got on really well with him. He, again, when he broke into the Irish setup with me, he played, he was playing for Oxford. And I think just the way Humps was, he was such a talented player. And, um, you know, he was sort of effectively, uh, you know, could just do anything and fly off. So I think just the way Holmes was in his personality, he was just quite relaxed. And he was like, listen, you know, you're a good kicker, you know, you want to kick. I'm happy not having the responsibility because he could then concentrate on on playing 10. But then whenever we went out and practiced our kicking, they'd be seeing Holmes a bit like when he's on the golf course. He's just lumping these balls like miles down through the posts, like, like he hits drives down the fairway, 300 yards. And he just, and I just thought, wow, he is such a good kicker. But again, I, I was probably quite obsessed with the kicking so I'd be out there for hours practicing I think Humps was always just fairly relaxed if he, if he you know Humps was well there he could probably have not practiced for months and then you would have you know, if I'd got injured in the semi-finals and he probably could have given him one of those big kicks and he's just knocked it over in his sleep he was that sort of person but you know well, when we played together he was just quite happy to let me kick and I suppose the rest is history as they say yeah, I'm so interested to hear about y- your perspective on kicking because obviously you're known as a very reliable, unflappable goal kicker. So for any kickers listening, tell us about the process. How do you manage to maintain composure Do you know, when you're under such pressure um, when kicking? Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny because I've done, in the last few years, I've done a few like a young younger players have come to me and I've done a bit of kicking coaching with them. And I suppose without you know, going too technical on it. But for me, it's a fine line goal kicking because I'm kicking generally because it, it, it's where art and science merge together. You know, you've got the science of it, you know, the physiology of it and the sort of, you know, the, the structural side of how you kick and how you strike the ball. But, but I think there's also the artistic side of it as well where sometimes you can overthink these things. And, and for me, I always was in a really relaxed place when I was obviously kicking well, but when I was practicing a lot, and I think, you know, nowadays, you, you could probably John Green would be the first to say, you've just got to be out there practicing hour upon hour. It's like golfers, isn't it? But, you know, if you're doing that, then you're always in a really good place where you can say, well, I've given everything I've got here to uh, to give myself the best chance of being successful. But, but ultimately, you know, there are times when the wind might be blowing or, you know, the pitch is a little bit wet or, you know, various factors. And, you know, there's just there's an art to kicking the ball. People get too obsessed with millimetres when it isn't like that. You know, you, you, I would say to, to people when they're first taking the first few kicks, if you were playing a football game and you just had to roll a corner in or, you know, you, you wouldn't be obsessed about taking three steps back, 3.1 steps to the side. Sometimes you can overthink everything. Yeah, systems and, you know, structural side of it is really important. But, you know, I, I think uh, there's definitely a lot of artistic license to being a good goal kicker. And, and 
that word confidence as well. You know, when you are confident, and I was super confident when I was playing for Ulster, and that's the season, you know, we won the European Cup, obviously, you know, it was just momentum goes. So every time you come in, it's, you know, like a top golf, you're coming back onto the course, you're feeling like you've got that bank of success that you can build on. And, um, you know, and again, even, you know, same like there with Humps, you know, the fact, even from the start, you know, to play in a team with someone as good a goal kicker as Humps, who basically just says, listen, you know, you're, you're, you're better than me, you, even though whether it was true or not, I don't know. But he, it just gives you that confidence straight away to think, well, you know, I'm. Uh, you know, I, I feel my shoulders are back, and I feel you know proud before I even sort of uh, stepped up for my first kick. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So obviously, as both a, a kicker and also a fullback, you're under enormous pressure in a game. So did self doubt ever play a role in, in that? I mean, whenever you're stepping up, I always think. Flip, I wouldn't like to be in that situation where there's a match match winning penalty, you have to or a conversion, you have to hit. Do you ever does it ever get into your head, what if I just walk up and duff it five yards and yeah, everyone, oh, everyone's sort of laughing? Does it enter into yeah, it? All the time. And that, and that was the bizarre thing for me. I, I've said that before in other stuff I've done. Um, you know, it, for me, I was all I was the worst before games, you know. I like probably sound confidence and you know when you're interviewed and stuff and afterwards it's easy if you've done well but you know I don't know many goal kicks I mean Johnny, Johnny Wilkinson was the prime one you know just the nerves would, would and Neil Jenkins admits the same that nerve, nerves can paralyse you it just it's literally you just want to get out there onto the pitch sometimes because once you're out there you forget about all the a mental tension but that could be torture as a goal kick you know sitting in their hotel two hours before a game thinking of all the slipping on your backside or duffing the first kick. I mean, you know, I've been there, I've had games where it's, you know, you've had the lucky bounce and I've had games where, you know, like, I mean, that, where I got my last cap for Ireland against Western Savannah, I mean, I actually kicked seven penalties, I think, but I missed about eight. So it was just, you know, and, and it is true, you know, that the posts suddenly start to shrink and, you know, when I watch these people walk up to set these massive penalties, uh, you know, in football and shootouts, you just, you know, you can tell the people who walk up thinking that the goal looks 20 metres wide and you can just tell the instant someone walks up and suddenly it's becoming like a hockey goal. You can just see by the body language, but, but that was the big Harry. I'd always been like that. And I would, you know, even in recent years, I was still kicking. I wouldn't get nervous, but you still have that apprehension of like being a lot being on you as well. But that European final was, in in a way, the most bizarre thing ever because the moment I woke up that morning, it must be what someone like Cristiano Ronaldo or you know the world classes are down. These sort of players who just ooze confidence, who never have a self doubt. I woke up that morning and it was just the most bizarre thing. I just felt from the off I wasn't going to miss a kick. And, you know, I was the main man and there was, you know, nothing was going to stop me that day. And it, it was just complete contrast to every other day of my life as a goal kicker. That's so, that's so good to it's hear. Mad, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it, it's mad. And it's also reassuring, to, you know, I'm sure for, for young players or people listening, it's reassuring to hear it. even Simon Mason felt nervous before games oh, or felt nervous before All kicks. the time, all the time, yeah. And, that, and, and, and again, you know, he's saying there for, you know, for younger players who might be listening in terms of, you know, developing the goal kicker, it just, it literally, it, that's the thing in games. It's good. What you've got, what you learn, I think, is you get more experience in sports is everybody gets nervous. Everyone has those nerves, or certainly most mortal people do. But, um, you know, you, you, it's just how you manage them. And sometimes you can use nerves, certainly as a goal kicker, you can use nerves um, actually to, to help you. You know, it can give you extra power, you know, and that's where you you get you get good, I think, when you're practicing a lot as a professional because it becomes quite mundane and quite routine and you know it's just about challenging yourself all the time so that was probably the hardest thing for me in the early years I probably did too much even around the Ulster years I probably did too much as I got to the latter stages of my career in, in Italy um, I just started to, to go very much towards um, quality rather than quantity and that actually was was probably the hardest thing to do because I, I mean I used to have a routine in the early days, where I'd have 30 kicks. Um, and if, if I missed, and they were easiest kicks, if I missed one of them, I'd go back and start again. And the amount of times I did that, and in the end, I just had to go in because I couldn't do it, you know, because I was putting too much pressure on myself. 
Yeah. So it's it's a very fine line, to be honest, Pete. And it, it you say, you know, as a young goal kicker or even you know, a hooker throwing in, all you can do is practice. And the more you practice, you know, I like golf being the great analogy, you know, you practice, but it doesn't mean you're guaranteed success, but you've got a hell of a lot, hell of a lot better chance of being successful if you practice all the time. Yeah, really interesting insight there and the the obsession that, that as kickers you, you have. Johnny Wilkinson says something very similar about sort of kicking the obsession that you get with it and how that can probably be not mentally great in the long term so you eventually learn balance. Um, but I want to refer <coughs> a, a wee bit to, um, for y- younger listeners in particular who might not remember, you're talking about an inevitability there by Ulster winning the European Cup and uh, on the morning off the, the European Cup, a real sense. But it wasn't all that straightforward for the 99 squad. So tell us a bit about the ups and downs. So there's that draw with Edinburgh smashed by Toulouse away. Uh, and maybe guide us through that progression of belief from Toulouse and 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 in the quarters and then Stad and then Clomiers in the in the final. At what point did you feel that it was inevitable? Was it just the morning of the European Cup, or at the start of the season, were you thinking I've made a mistake here <laughs> coming to Ulster? Yeah, no, I mean I never thought that. Anyway, being honest, genuine because I mean it, it, what what had happened was was great for me because I was suddenly playing back in a high profile environment. I was playing. In some provincial games, we've done reasonably well there. We have a few ups and downs. We got thumped away at Munster, but you know, generally, I thought I was playing well and the team was doing okay. And then we hit the European. It was disappointing. I felt like we blew it in the home game against Edinburgh when we drew. And um, and then I think sadly, and that's where rugby Ireland generally has changed now. I think going to Toulouse back then. Was there was an inevitability about getting smashed over there and trying to keep it respectable? And I think Harry Williams spotted that, and he gave the side a real telling off afterwards. And even our preparation for that, if, if we're being honest now, you're know, looking back. We went over on a Thursday. A couple of us went out had a couple of beers. You know, things that just wouldn't happen now because there was that sense of oh, we're just on a bit of a you know, let's go to to lose, let's try and keep it respectable. Um, and then all of a sudden it just changed after that we won away at Abervale, um, really convincing performance and then I mean, the big the big turnaround thinking that's it was beating Toulouse at home in the group stages because we, we really outplayed them um, you know we, we sort of took the game to them we outscored them cut by tries as well as obviously points and, and that just gave everyone the confidence and then you know that win over Win away in uh, in Edinburgh to, to effectively take us through to the knockout stages. I mean, again, even that we were dead buried in that. We got Shelley Coulter got lovely intercept, and it was back on. And you know, I think at that point, people's confidence was just starting to, to grow and grow. And, and even at the same time, um, Vale had been beaten hundred points over in Toulouse. They beat. Um, they beat Toulouse on the reverse game and it suddenly meant we're back at home quarter-final playing Toulouse and I think at that point no one feared them anymore you know that oh we better go to Toulouse try and keep it reasonably respectable it was suddenly like you know we're at home you know bring it on as Wardy would say and and it was it was you know we beat them and then you know Stade Francais again you know one gave us a hope you know they, they came over all sorts of giving it beans saying they were expecting to beat us comfortably and uh you know, and that again was probably the game I think is is one of the best games we ever played, and probably must not be up there with one of the best Ulster games of all time. Yeah, and then you're saying about the inevitable inevitability of the final, and part of that, I suppose, I got the sense I said to you before uh, we started recording that that's one of my sort of early rugby memories of going down to Lansdowne Road for the final, and I sort of want to know. How important are the fans? Uh, I know there are cliches about the 16th man, and especially as a kicker, though, how aware are you of the crowd? Do you have the blinkers on? Are you in a state of flow where you block everything else out? Or can you be spurred on or, or conversely intimidated by, by a crowd? How much does it actually affect you as a player? Yeah, I mean, I, I can only speak personally, and I just know that 
you know, I, I've never been. I mean, nowadays it's all quite, um, it's quite nice, isn't it? No one really sort of, there's not, you know, when you used to go to France, there were hooters going off and you'd be like, I loved all that. And in Italy, it was the same, the end of my career, you know, people throwing things at you while you were kicking it. it was, oh, I loved it, brilliant. But, I mean, for me, in terms of that positivity, I mean, I remember the semi-final against Stade Francais and, you know, I'd done my usual routine in the morning. It was obviously a bit strange because the the, the the temporary stands in behind both goals, and there was back to a few drop kicks with with um, with Stephen Bell, and we were doing our usual routine. And then and then when I got after we left the hotel, and got to the ground. I went out a bit about an hour before, thinking I'll just do my normal sort of you know, literally little you know a few kicks before the game. And there was I, the place was packed. I mean, that was the thing that struck me. You say there, that was the time I thought that's how much a home crowd can make a difference. We had pretty much 20,000 people in there. Well, there's certainly about 15 out of 20 were in there by by an hour before kickoff. And every kick I hit, there were cheers. And you could just feel that buzz, that anticipation. And, you know, I, I can still sense that and feel that now. And that was the same before the final runs down the road. You're going out to say, you could just, that sense of anticipation and, uh, you know, and I think that it's probably different now because you know, if you think now, you know, say Ulster got to European Cup final, you, you probably you'd know them, wouldn't you? It could be your toughest game is going to be in the final, but you know, realistically, not that we in any way, um, you know, underestimated Colombia's, but I think having beaten Toulouse and then beaten South Francais, I think we felt from you know even a week, two weeks before the final that this is the game that we should win here. So I think that confidence, it, you know, take, you have to taper it a little bit because obviously you don't want it to be arrogance. And, but I just never felt for one moment that, you know, we weren't able to deliver in that final. I never felt that, unlike maybe against Stade Francais, where you thought, oh, there may be better players than us man for man. I never felt that Colombier were. So we always, uh, I think that was where that confidence came from. And, um, you know, for me, as I say, it's very rare. I know we're the worst. We're getting the demons and, you know, the, the, the dream about slipping over just before the ball. Or, but, you know, from the moment I got up that morning and, um, you know, I, I was just, that was it. This was going to be our day. And, and I think that was a lot of players felt the same. Yeah, I certainly felt the same, you know, uh, from from the fans' perspective as well. I just remember as a wee kid, just that, like uh, thought this this is we've already won, do you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 good to hear the players thought that as well, and it's cool that I mean, just to wake up with that sense of belief it must be an. Uh, yeah, I think it was. A, I say, I mean, say as well, it wasn't arrogance. It was just, um, I think it was confidence built on what we'd really sort of. You know what we'd done and where we put ourselves, the place we put ourselves into, and I think, especially with it being at home, you know, in Ireland and Dublin, it, it just felt there was no way that you know forty, fifty thousand sort of Ulster were going to come down to Lansdowne Road and we'd be let them down and put in a whip performance. You know, it was everyone was well up for it for, for weekly and up to it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, w- I want to touch, I suppose, on. Sort of now you've you've been out of, of professional rugby for a while and you look back and I want to talk a bit about sort of if you have any regrets or things that you could have done differently, especially with regard to Ireland. So you you, you particularly in that campaign regarded as as a, a top fullback and one of the best kickers in Europe. Is there part of you would have liked to get? I mean, this might seem like an obvious answer, but I mean, how, how much of the number of Ireland caps that you got, do you regret? Yeah, no, that, or or yeah. it, 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 is it is it a source of regret, or or is it just? It's obviously an amazing achievement to get capped by Ireland, but w- would you have? Could you have done more to get back in that squad? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, no, hundred percent. I mean, and, and I think it. I think that's part of maturity, and as you. Yeah, as you grow up and, you know, like saying, I have my own kids and, uh, you know, being more reflective on stuff, you know, it, it, it's definitely in the, in the negative sort of regrets column is not getting more caps. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, there's nothing against anyone individually, you know, like, you know, someone like Gerben Dempsey, lovely lad, decent player, but what did he get? 89 caps for Ireland. And I just think at that moment in, in my career, when, when, especially when, that season with um, with winning the European Cup, I just felt like I was on fire, and and all I needed was 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 a chance to play again and prove myself. But but you know, my dad, my, my late father said to me, you know, you you, you played international rugby and you won the European Cup, so you know, and again, the Ulster fans would probably be appreciative of that. You know, f- for me, 
you know, and it's, it wouldn't diminish playing for more times for Ireland. But you know, that European Cup is is up there with with uh, you know, you, 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 no one can take that away from us. And uh, it, it wasn't just the fact that we won it. You know, to looking back now, over twenty years ago, you know, but to to have an instrumental part, to be a big part of it. Um, is is what gives me a lot of uh, satisfaction, you know, to be a, gr- a great group of guys who, who gave a hundred percent, and then to be someone who actually had a big impact on that is is what gives me a lot of satisfaction. But but definitely the the lack of Ireland caps was a was a, was a big source of regret for me at the time. It was really frustrating. But but again, you know, it, people make decisions. You know, Warren Gatland's proved to be like an absolutely unbelievable coach, hasn't he? And you know. It, Unfortunately for me, you know, I was uh, I just lacked that yard of pace, and because of that, I probably missed more tackles than I should, and you know, didn't have that electri- electrifying pace that all the players did who possibly played more games than me. So, yeah, but it was a frustrating time, you know, when I, when I was at the top of my game to not be to not be recognised that because when I played for Ireland in '96, you know, Humphrey will say the same. Coming into that setup, which was very very changeable all the time. You know, you, you probably got two or three caps to prove yourself and that was it. But, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it was a tough environment to be in. Well, now, you know, there's a lot of consistency and, you know, and again, that's probably the, the whole setup. You know, players are playing in academies. They know the, 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 the skills are probably honed a little bit more. There's not many people who've got weaknesses either. So, uh, but yeah, but definitely that would be the big regret. Um, but again, you know, as I say, you know, you look back and you become a bit more melancholic, don't you? As you get old, but you know, that no one can ever take that away from from us. That European win, and uh, you know, it, it really was something that I think every single person who's part of that would feel immensely proud of. And again, even when you're you know putting these sort of things together, you have a sense that even the younger generation, you know, they they do they do appreciate it, and you know. And I think they realised that, you know, it was a tough thing to do. Absolutely. And I suppose if someone had offered you that, as you started out in your career, saying, look, you'll win a European Cup and you'll, you'll play international rugby, every rugby player would bite your hand off and say, I'll yeah. take that career. Absolutely. And, and, uh, um, and, that, and, that, and that is it, honestly. And that's it. I mean, just, and that's what, you know, I, I feel utterly blasted to be able to look back now and go, I played international rugby, won the European Cup, I played rugby in England, Ireland, Italy, France. You know, I mean, in nearly, sometimes I look back and think, that was that the twin brother? Because he'd seen play five, six years ago. But I think everyone who played against me was saying, this can't be the same man. <laughs> and t- tell us a bit more about that, that rugby journey after Ulster then, going go and playing in, in France and, and Italy as well. What was that experience like? Oh, brilliant! Really good. I mean, my year in in Paris was was great. I mean, a bit similar to Richmond, really. Where I mean, you know, I was up against sort of Diego Dominguez at fifteen, and um, sorry, sorry, uh, Diego Dominguez at ten, Dominici at fifteen, Christoph Dominici at fifteen. It was hard to play regularly there, um, and then I just went looking for a new challenge after that. And Italy was was somewhere I absolutely loved, and you know, sadly for me, in my final year, I. I uh, three good years and I think my daughter was born out there as well um, so my wife and I really love it out there we go back there quite regularly and um, you know my only regret was you know my mum unfortunately got got poorly when I was out there so we just decided as a family we were going to go back but um, I missed out on, on beating Michael Liner's points record by about 50 points so that was the only shame really because obviously they'd stayed out there another season I would have beaten that and beaten a thousand points, and uh, you know, because it, it again, it was just it was a really good rugby experience. Uh, we played, we've had some good games in the European Cup and won two championships there. So, you know, I say, I mean, just you know, it would have been nice to have played 50, 60 times for Ireland and had that career like that. But for me, it, that didn't happen. But all the other experiences just uh, a value immensely. Yeah, and look, you've obviously learned so much from. From playing in different cultures and, and different different squads over the years, and with your coaching now, tell me a bit more about obviously being head of rugby at, at your old school, and tell us a bit more about your coaching philosophy. Like, what are the key messages you're giving the young people you coach to improve them as players? This might be helpful to any young players listening. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, it's been great at school because you know we 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 very much put a lot of work into 
developing basics of players. And, and we have some really talented players that say come from like a football, soccer background. So that they've got exceptional movement skills and, and pace. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, our coaching philosophy is just, we work pretty hard with, with the guys, but, and we work a lot on the basics, but, but we also work on, on being tough and uncompromising. And I think that's probably one of the things that, you know, from the time of, you know, sort of mid-90s and, you know, you think of the Willie Andersons and all, you know, the sort of those type of coaching sessions. And, you know, it, it, sometimes just, you know, being tough and aggressive is really important as well. Um, but, I mean, even I've learned in the last few years, you know, I think the game's changed a lot. There's a lot more structures to the game. And, you know, we worked a lot on that during lockdown. And it's really helped us. You know, we got to the national court final last year with the seniors and the in the English equivalent schools cup competition. So, you know, our boys have worked really hard, but, you know, similar to what we talked about with the goal kicking, you know, what, what, what you put into life, you get out as well. I think rugby is quite brutal for that. If you cut corners and, you know, you don't practice on your skills or you let your fitness go or, you know, you just work on your strengths and not your weaknesses, then, you know, really that, that's, um, that's a recipe for disaster. So, you know, and rugby again, you know, Unlike football, where you can have two or three really good players, you know, you've got to constantly work on on every part of your team, and all the players have got to know their role and and feel valued and part of a part of a you know a, a full squad setup, and, and we work a lot on that, and uh, you know, but um, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, this is a really good thing about it. We really think you know we, we have a will to win, obviously, but you know, winning, losing games is important, but it's, it's not the be all and all. I won't be getting sacked if we lose three games on the round. So, you know, we can afford to have a bit more of a, of a philosophy of of, um, of moving the ball and, uh, you know, taking a few risks as well. And, and that's one thing I'd like to see more of, younger players feeling, you know, the ability to sort of take a chance because sometimes it is a little bit sterile what we watch, isn't it? And even at academy level, uh, I mean, one really interesting example is after that tour when we came over and we played friends in Lisbon and we went up to Balamere, we actually went on the Monday. Um, Ireland under-19s played France under-19s at Queen's and our lads were, were mesmerised by that. They, they were really, really pleased. I think we could have taken them to an Ulster game or a high-profile sort of premiership game over in England, but I think they got more out of watching that because that was a really good quality game where a lot of players express themselves. Um, I wouldn't say take loads of chances, but they move the ball, the skill sets were really sort of uh, high level. And and I think for, for certainly for my seniors last year to watch that, they made them realise that, that that level isn't unattainable if you work hard and you train hard. Yeah. No, it's it's um it's interesting to hear you say that. I suppose a lot of schoolboy rugby players get put off if it's too regimented or there's that there's no freedom to Express yourself or play creatively, and you know, I think that's I think that's cool what you're saying about uh, about encouraging people to do that rather than um, suck all the joy out of the game. Do you know which, which yeah. sometimes happens if you, if if uh, young people take rugby too seriously, it just ends up there's no enjoyment in it anymore. So um, you might you might have seen today, Pete. There's been a big sort of kickoff in England about Eddie Jones's comments about public schools in England and all that. You've seen that. And uh, yeah. you know, Eddie, Eddie Jones is sort of basically criticised the, the public school setup. But and, and interestingly, today I heard um, Will Greenwood was on Talksport, and he made a really good point. Because you know, I went to um, last year for a coaching course, um, you know, helping out with the kids, and you can tell that you know the, the public schools in England have a real fierce desire to want to win and to play to play good levels of rugby. But but also at those schools, the kids are still playing cricket. They're still playing squash and you know doing core PE. I mean, I think certainly in England the big problem. I don't know what the setup's like. Also, I imagine it's a bit more rounded. But, but I think the problem in England though, is the academy setup, where a lot of players it's too regimented. You know, it's, it, it, so a lot of these players. You know, where, where would the Ian Bothams of today be? You know, where they play effectively the equivalent of professional cricket, football, and, and he could have played rugby as well, couldn't he? So you know it. I think that's the problem now. Too many kids are going into one sport, one set of skills, lifting weights all the time. I think, you know, to have a rounded sport in life where you play a number of sports and they like saying, no, it's bumps, you know, you know, I've seen bumps play golf and he's, he's, he's 
probably should be off scratch. And I imagine if he hits a tennis ball, he could hit a tennis ball really well. He just those sorts of top players should be around at every sport and have that ability and that vision. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely. I did see those comments uh, by Eddie Jones, and I think here, I suppose, uh, the, on that point you're making about um, young people playing different sports, I suppose over here there's a demographic which don't actually have the opportunity to play rugby in school, and vice versa. There might be Gaelic games that yeah. uh, the kids get don't have the opportunity to play, and the skill set and and the overall enjoyment that you get from playing sport. And a diverse range of sport is, is is somewhat lost here as well. So, you know, I think we have we have similar problems. Whenever you just focus on one sport, um, you, you miss out loads of people and and sport. You know, different sports, particularly say Gaelic and rugby, as we've seen with uh, a lot of Ireland players over the years. You know, they, they complement each other really well. So, um, no, definitely, it's a yeah. Yeah, and, and that was like that with football for me. You know, up until probably about fourteen, fifteen, where I went down more, thinking it would be more competitively. You know, we just played. I mean, it might not always have been you know Sunday matches or Saturday matches, but we just we always had the ball at our feet. We always, you know, and they say playing cricket. If 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 Wimbledon was on, we'd be trying to go and play tennis. If um, you know the golf was on, we'd be hitting golf balls. So you know, I think I think that's the big thing as well. You know, kids should be enjoying a wide range of sport and activities and certainly as a teacher rather than a rugby coach you know, we do a lot of um, we do handball basketball badminton and you know the kids at first they're all badminton they're, but you know their movement skills their anticipation and their reaction time and um, you know agility from that really helps the rugby as well all these transferable skills I know that yeah. uh, that, that can be used for, for rugby and, and indeed for other sports as well so in terms of, uh, this is the final question, because um, I, I could sit and talk to you for, for ages, but I want to respect your time. And the, yeah, final, que- so. <laughs> the, the final question, and it's a tricky one, uh, and as a humble person, uh, this will be tricky, but as someone who has won a European Cup, um, what do you think Ulster need to do to reach those heights again? Do you think Ulster can compete in Europe once again at the highest level? And if so, what do you think Ulster need to do? Maybe from grassroots or maybe this current squad, you can interpret that however you like. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. It's a question that people ask all the time. And I mean, one thing we'll say, I don't think we belittle ourselves by saying that, but, you know, under the current format, you know, this is like an unbelievable competition. You know, we, we won the European Cup, but we down there, there's the star on the jersey. We're all immensely proud of that. But, you know, the levels and the consistency you need now to be able to win that competition. I mean, I've always said, and I felt even this year was another one of those, where you need that little bit of luck as well. You know, I mean, obviously, was it 2012, the last final we lost to Leinster? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, outplayed in the final, you know, you have to... You sort of shake your opponent's hand and say, well done, they were better than us, weren't they? But, you know, most of these games you see, like the Toulouse game, the, the, the margins are just minuscule, aren't they? And I still feel that, you know, you watch the difference between being an open champion or coming second for McElroy and people like that. Sometimes it literally is the old-fashioned bounce of the ball. And, you know, I think considering... You know, also on the position like some of the French teams to go and sign five or six top players with massive budgets. You know, really, it, it, from my point of view, you know, obviously I'd love to see Ulster win it. I think it'd be incredible and I'd be one of the proudest people to, to see this next generation do that. But, you know, I, I look at the young players coming through and, and the conveyor belt from the academy and I just think it's incredible. I mean, just there's some really good players. And when you're in that position, then you give yourself half a chance. And I suppose, you know, diversifying a little bit, but as a Liverpool fan, you know, I, you know, it's great if you're winning things all the time, but what I've loved about Jurgen Klopp is the fact that, you know, yeah, he will sign players and they, they are the good player, like a version of Van Dijk will make a big difference to your squad, but, but you know, to bring players through, to coach players, which obviously like to Dan, this team want to do and develop that sense of ethos and being part of the jersey is, is just as important as well. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we're not that far away. You know, you look at Leinster, they are incredible, aren't they? But, you know, I think Ulster are in a really good position. And, and I just personally think just a little bit of a little bounce of a ball here or there, like it, it could make a big difference. You know, to go to Toulouse last year, to win in Toulouse, and then just heartbreaking, then to lose by 
a couple of points because of you know what was a marginal was a yellow card decision. So these are the things that ultimately are just a very very small margins that can affect winning championships or coming second. But but one thing that's pleasing as a fan and watching it a lot now is we're up there, we're competing. We're not certainly not the whipping boys, and you know maybe that's all all down the lads need just this little bit of a bounce of the ball. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I think we can leave it on that note of hope and optimism and uh, the fact that we do have a great crop of young players emerging in this Ulster squad. And I suppose, uh, Simon, it's your fault that, that the benchmark has been set now at winning a European Cup and you're responsible for, for that. So there's yeah. a lot for, for young guys to live up to. But it also actually, it's, it's, it's inspiring, you know, the young players to come through and, and to, to aspire to be the second team to win the European Cup with Ulster. And um, yeah, and, and Simon, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. As I say, I could talk to you uh, for, for a lot longer, but it's a lovely evening. So I'll let you yeah. go, go yeah, on. Yeah, listen, that's great. I mean, one final thing I will say to you is like, you know, you, for these, these players, I mean, obviously, you know, winning the European Cup is everything, but when, when you go looking for your European tankard, um, a few years ago when you find it in your daughter's room with dog treats and you suddenly realise that actually things that you think are the most important thing in your life over time and with family and stuff like that become less important so uh, <laughs> you just seize the day to say <laughs> well it's great you're being kept grounded at home and, <laughs> yeah, very uh, much uh, yeah and, and you're not let uh, you're not uh, allowed to get carried away with yourself which I'm sure you wouldn't anyway but that's <laughs> <laughs> that's wow, a great that's really... a great note of perspective to end on. <laughs> and, and and Simon, thanks again uh, yeah, for your no, time. Yeah, you too, mate. And uh, yeah, just keep in touch. That's great, Simon.